Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. This is the end of season three. It's been such a fun season um, going on three years of doing the show. Um, I feel like we've gotten a chance to get to know our listeners better. We've met a lot of new listeners this season um, virtually. Um, so we appreciate you all connecting with us, staying engaged, um, giving us inspiration. And so we are excited for what's to come for season four. Um, and um, we are super excited to how we how we are ending our last episode. Um, we have a special guest with us today, Nina Itamudia. I will introduce her in a bit. Um, but Jasmine, how are you holding up today? Thanks for asking me this time, Nemo, for the people who listen to You saw I put it in there. I said, don't be mannerless. Like, <laughs> ask how she's doing. I'm doing good. We're recording on a Monday. I think it's the last Monday of Women's History Month. So it's very befitting that we're having this conversation with Nina and Nemo and Jasmine. Um, she's stressed out on a Monday. How are you doing? I am doing well, I think the Monday started off great. I've been on my orange theory kick and it always makes me feel like I can do anything. And then the day defeats me at some point before noon again. And I'm like, can I do all of this? But um, it's been it's been a, it's been a pretty, pretty good day. I can't complain. Um, so with that, um, I will go ahead and introduce our special guest um, and I'll read her bio and then we'll get into the conversation um, and I'm sure many of you listening are very familiar with Nina. Um, she has been a, a great example and like a if if we could have a black female planning mentor, um, <laughs> this would be her. Um, and so I look forward to this um, connection and collaboration on today's episode and many more into the future. Um, so Nina, as a native Detroiter, understands firsthand how the built environment shapes the lives of society's most vulnerable populations. This fuels her passion for empowering people to be change agents through planning. Nina started her career as a planner for the city of Los Angeles, but currently serves as a Chicago Recovery Plan Director for the city of Chicago's Department of Planning and Development. She specializes in equitable community development, inclusive outreach strategies, and organizational innovation for planning agencies. Nina has two awards from the American Planning Association, is a Vanguard Fellow, a New Leaders Council Fellow, and was also honored with a Shiro Award by the Los Angeles Council Member Kern D. Price Jr. for her community leadership. Nina was recently elected the first Black president of the Illinois chapter of the American Planning Association. She is also a board member of the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning and a graduate of University of Michigan and the University of Southern California. So Nina, how are you doing? Um, and uh, how did you discover urban planning as a profession? What did you see yourself doing um, when you started your planning education? And how is that related to where you are now? So 
I know that's a lot, but that is a break, lot. break it up, break <laughs> it up however you see fit. What up? Hey, uh, I'm happy to be here with y'all. Um, yeah, I, I, every guest always says, cause I listened to a few episodes and every guest is always like, it's weird hearing my bio written out loud, <laughs> read out loud. <laughs> and it is. And then I was like, dang, I forgot a few things. Um, <laughs> let us know. Let us know. <laughs> um, no, it, it's it's good to be here. So thank you for inviting me to your platform. Really excited. When I heard a, a, a podcast about planning hosted by two black women, sign me up, give it to me. You know, uh, I could I, I could not be more prouder to be on your platform and to to see and also reading up on you too. You all are amazing as well. So it was a no brainer for me to say yes. Um, well, how did I get to urban planning? I feel like everybody, every every marginalized group is always like, you know, I didn't fall on planning, planning fell on me type of thing. Um, although like I'm from Detroit, you could probably hear it in my voice. I almost said what up though. And when I came on, when I said the first thing that came to my mouth, I was like, okay, let me not get too Detroit on them. At least not yet. But obviously it didn't take too long. No, we want um, all of the Detroit. Detroit. We want all of the Detroit on the episode. Yes. Y'all are probably going to hear it in my voice for sure. Uh, and I also tend to talk fast. Um, I think it's also the Detroit spirit in me to like, you know, we be hustling. So we we say a lot of things in a very short amount of time. Um, so yeah, grew up on the east side of Detroit. Um, you know, grew up poor, you know. Oh, oh. Telly also understands the struggles. That's my dog in the background. She's neighborhood watch. So she just looks in out the window and barks at random people. Um, and so growing up in Detroit, like most people, you know, grew up with a, a finite amount of resources, but didn't understand why. Uh, went to school in the suburbs um, for most of my life from third grade to the, to the time I graduated high school. Did not live in that suburb that I went to school in. So took the bus, the eight mile bus. Yes, eight mile does exist. If you've seen the movie, it is a real street, uh, you know, back and forth between the East Side of Detroit and Harper Woods where I went to school, but living most of that time in Detroit. Uh, and so like just seeing the landscape change as I was going from my neighborhood to the neighborhood that I went to school in. And I've always been a person who, who was very curious about, um, the outcomes of people, you know, like why people ended up the way they did. You know, my mother went to prison when I was 10. And so that definitely shaped the way I thought about life. And even though she was college educated, you know, she, um, went to law school she didn't finish because she had three kids but you know she went to law all these things but still this you know sometimes depending on where you're born or where you live you can't outrun the social factors that um impede a lot of uh, our communities right or or affect a lot of our communities in that way um and so yeah that was always just very curious um I'm also an Aquarius so I I, I think about things a lot I think about people and relationships a lot um, and so growing up, I was always interested in like African-American history, the history of my grandparents. My father is Nigerian. So I had that history. And then my mother, um, my maternal grandparents are, uh, from Sunflower, Mississippi. So I'm like a descendant of slaves. So like having those two cultures merge and me trying to understand both of those sides of me, um, definitely influenced how I thought about the world. And by the time I went to college, I went to the university of Michigan, go blue, um, I decided to do African-American studies and women's studies. And to, you know, my mom was like, why are you getting a degree in yourself? Cause I like to tell people, 
Um, but it was because I wanted to learn more about people like me, right? Like how did I, I'm the, to me, I'm the exception to the rule, not the rule in a lot of ways. Um, being, being the way that I grew up versus how the opportunities that I've been able to, to have in life. Um, and so, yeah, it just made me think a lot. And then one of my advisor advisors from Michigan for my African-American studies program was like, oh, the program, the urban planning program in Michigan is recruiting. Are you interested? Did not know where urban planning was. Bada boom, bada bing. Googled it. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds fun. Like it sounds, so that's kind of how I fell into it. I think that's such an important story. I think for everybody that studies planning, there's always a very like circuitous pathway to the profession. There's very few people who are in high school like, yeah, I'm going to be a planner when I grow up. I, I haven't heard that mm -hmm. ever, even still with all of the programming that goes on in terms of trying to recruit students and minority students to the profession. I still don't think that many people seek that out initially. And we had another episode, where we talked to other people who studied different things, but ended up being planners. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want to go back to your bio because it's a very and you talked about this before we got on the show, but it's a very uh, storied and high accomplished bio. So I just want to congratulate you on Thank having you. the AICP and all the different roles that you served in and different awards that you received in a different org. I mean, basically like every organization that you participate in is like the pinnacle of being in, in planning. And so congratulations <laughs> Thank to, you. to you for that. And everyone has heard Nemo and I's story on how we discovered planning Nemo studying geography. No, I was actually a senior in high school when I discovered planning. Oh, so, so Nemo is the exception. I'm, I'm the rare, I'm the like rare, <laughs> rare unicorn. Um, and so I studied planning both in undergrad and grad school. That's dope. And I also studied in undergrad and grad school, but I started in undergrad as a psychology major. Um, mm -hmm. And that was in a way that you studied African-American studies and wanted to understand your family's dynamic. I wanted to be a psychologist because I have parents who were addicted to drugs. And so I felt like this was important mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then another counselor of mine told me about urban planning, which the program was just kind of starting off. It was mostly a graduate program. He hadn't had an undergraduate class graduate mm -hmm. with that degree yet and so google did was like oh this is perfect i love this mm -hmm. so just sharing our story and how it all fits in i think that's interesting it's always interesting to me to see how other people who are in planning have found the career and found their their pathway within it yeah what i noticed about a lot of the stories and, and a, I, I mean i graduated from high school in 08 so and i went to grad school in 2012 so a lot of these things that we're talking about in planning now were like I won't say that people weren't talking about them in planning ever, but I feel like it was finally a part of the curriculum. And I was like in that in between of when nobody was talking about it versus when everybody was talking about it. What I mean by it is like diversity, equity, inclusion in a planning program. And so, I mean, it's funny because people don't know about planning. Well, black people and people of color don't know about planning by design. Planning is a tool of, of institutional racism. Planning is a tool of white supremacy even calling myself a planner and being a part of the American Planning Association or being a being a government worker there's always this identity crisis that I find myself in of wanting to change a system that was not meant for me and so it does not it doesn't 
um, surprise me when I hear my peers, like people my age and older say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know about this. This wasn't something that was brought to my attention, but it makes me so proud to hear that people who are younger than me are being introduced at a younger age and a younger age. And that was part of even when I went to, when I decided to go to grad school, I ended up going to University of Southern California for a planning school. I hated it. I was miserable. It was, it was a complete white bubble in the middle of South Central. I thought I was getting boys in the hood. So, you know, I was getting Detroit with palm trees. You know, that's what I thought I was getting into. And then I got there and it was just this white institution surrounded by this fence in a neighborhood with so much rich history. Um, And so I went to the administration. And I was like, we got to do something about this. Like, you know, the classes and people's ignorant comments. You know, I, I was African-American studies major, right? Everybody else was a was an architect undergrad, urban studies, maybe urban studies undergrad, um, engineers, <laughs> you know, pe- geography, like those kind of like type of degrees. And here I am, you know, talking the girl from Detroit with the accent, <laughs> um, talking about my lived experience and saying that their experience was actually diminished because they had not lived the life that I had lived. I had found strength finally in these identities that had been marginalized for so long. And I had actually told the administration, I was like, y'all need to start bringing youth here. I had worked with youth through all throughout undergrad. And in fact, because I grew up poor and did not have money, <laughs> I, you know, had a job when I landed in LA. I got, I had a job before I even set foot in California. Um, and I worked with youth in this program called Gear Up, which was also in Michigan. It's like a undergraduate pre- preparedness program for middle school and high school students. So anyway, I convinced the administration to fund a program for a hundred students to learn about planning. And so that was kind of like how I was like, you know what? I don't want people to wait until they get to this moment um, to learn about planning. We need to be, even if they don't end up planners, they need to have the language to understand how to dissect this system again that was not meant for us. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that, but I am very proud to see how how far we've come in educating younger people about planning, not just younger people, but black and brown youth about urban planning and structural racism that's tied to it. And I think as much as you inform younger people, even if they decide to pursue something completely different, right? Even if they go through various um, planning, preparedness, programming that that are geared towards high school and undergraduate students, and they decide to still study business or engineering or finance or whatever, that knowledge around the policies and the plans and the programs that have impacted negatively Black and Brown communities through the history of planning will be stuck with them forever. And I hope that it will make that's kind of the purpose of our podcast is to reach people who haven't studied planning, but we're all impacted by it. So whether or not you know that your the your town is currently in the master planning process, you're going to be impacted by it. Whether or not you know that there's a highway expansion project happening, you're going to be impacted by it. And that, in a way, is what makes planning so important is because even people who don't participate in it, if you're not being reached through the advocacy, through the engagement efforts, or you're not being reached through the community outreach programs, you're still going to be impacted by it. So you might as well learn as much as you can about it because it's going to impact your life. And I think for a lot of ways, planning has succeeded in being in, 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 
perpetuating systemic racism because it's been a little black box that you only know about if there's an issue. You're never, people aren't involved, particularly black and brown people aren't involved in the planning process. And then historically, even when they were involved, their ideas and their opinions were silenced in, in an effort of, right. oh, economic development. Oh, we can't worry about that now. We got to get the downtown together. And it's like, it's just a lot of issues and, and variables. Absolutely. And I think the more what I what I would hope to do is not only teach black and brown youth about urban planning, but then also have our white colleagues who perpetuate harm every day, including myself. Right. I I mean, like I am a part of an institution, again, that wasn't built for people like me. And so just innately, philosophically, I am I am helping to perpetuate that harm until I but I'm also actively because that's my purpose, undoing that harm. So we also need my white colleagues to acknowledge it. And there's no racism fairy that went around and made, you know, my neighborhood what it is versus what your neighborhood was versus what their neighborhood was. Like these are people making decisions um who have racist ideologies or 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 they or they perpetuate them. Um, and so that's, it's, it's really important to have both of those things hold true. And then us all or like to work towards undoing the harm that was done. There is no racism fairy. Um, there's no racism fairy. <laughs> I love that. I thought that was our first episode of the podcast. <laughs> Basically could have been called, there's no racism. No racism fairy. <laughs> this is, this is history. This is what happened. Holding off. Yes. That might be the episode of, that might be the title of another episode. Soon to come. <laughs> So we looked at we looked at your bio. We talked about that a lot, but we noticed that you've held both public and private roles and roles across the country in different cities across the country. How did your planning experiences differ by region? And from your perspective, what are each region's most significant urban planning challenges? You had a role on the West Coast mm-hmm. in LA, various roles in the Midwest. What do you see as being the biggest challenges in those regions, and and how did your experiences differ by region? Yeah, I I mean, I definitely have had the privilege um, and I do mean privilege to work in two very different areas. And and I think I think of it as a privilege because I think it makes me a better planner in a lot of ways. Um, And let me tell you what I mean by that. So like being a kid from Detroit, understanding the built environment the way it was and and the way my life is set up and how my family still lives in in Detroit and I still visit and there's still abandoned houses (laughs) and all that stuff. And then like, uprooting my entire life um when I had known nothing else you know at the age of 22 to Los Angeles and again I was like oh this is Detroit with palm trees like very similar but understanding the nuances of the the black diaspora and our experiences are so similar but also very nuanced and you have to respect those nuances and so it humbled me to learn planning in a place that I was not from um, because I really had, I could not make any assumptions. I really did have to listen. And I think people take that for granted. People know that think they know everything. Um, and so going into that, going into that environment, I was like, no, I'm, I'm like learning from this experience, but I also did feel empowered to speak up to my classmates and to my professors because of that wall that was around the school. And I'm like, y'all don't understand me and y'all don't understand them. Um, and so you know, I, I felt like it was a privilege to 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 be embraced by another another place. And I lived in L.A. for seven years and loving and miss it. And all my friends are there. Shout out to y'all. Um, and then like also California just has a lot of planning regulations. Um, obviously, CEQA 
um, which is environmental uh, state legislation in which, you know, I was writing uh, like 30 page staff reports, but then a hundred page environmental analysis on top of that. <laughs> um, one of my biggest projects was working on, I worked on the LAX renovation for the Olympics, um, which I know LAX is terrible now, but come 2028, hopefully it's going to be a lot better. And my name is on that report. Um, and then I worked on like, uh, uh, design, um, guidelines for West LA, you know, transit, I worked on the transit neighborhood teams or was that's at least what they used to call it when I was there. Um, I worked on preferential management, performance management. Los Angeles has one of the largest planning departments in the country by numbers, 400 people in that department. Um, and so I was very privileged to, again, to like have those resources and be able to learn planning in such a dynamic place where you could go from the valley to the shore and it's a completely different scenario. You could you could go in the valley and you could be by horses and people who, you know, cowboys and stuff like that. Or you're, you know, like I said, in South Central, um, where I felt like I, I knew a little bit more, but again, we're still learning. So it was I was really blessed to do that because by the time I came to Illinois, I knew a lot about how to read the zoning code, how to interpret the zoning code. Los Angeles has <laughs> like 13 or 14, you know, zoning administrators, whatever the num number is, Chicago has one, <laughs> you know? So like just the scale is, is different. Um, and in, in Los Angeles, um, a lot of the issues surrounded housing, of course, like housing was huge. Housing is huge. It's not was, is a huge problem. Affordability is a huge problem. Um, thinking about transit, transit systems, how to, how to back off of a car centric city and try to incorporate more transit. I'm, I always say I'm a land use planner who thinks about transit, not a transit planner. Um, and so it was really cool to kind of learn it in the, in the California context, specifically in LA. And then coming to Chicago, I worked, I came out right out the gate working for the city of Chicago working on what we call plan developments, which is things that go to the city plan commission. Um, and then I, uh, went to um, Muse Community Design to be their director of planning, which is another kind of firm, consulting firm out here in, in Illinois, in Chicago. And then I went back to the city <laughs> to be the chief of staff to Commissioner Maurice Cox, who used to be the planning director of the city of Detroit. Uh, when Mayor Lightfoot won, she hired him on. I became his chief of staff, and now I'm the director of the Chicago Recovery Plan for the department. So in, in Illinois, a lot less environmental regulations. In fact, I think there's there's probably some room to add some analysis. <laughs> but the density is is different, right? So I'm like, oh, when I was, you know, a four, five-story building, I was writing all sorts of environmental, you know, staff reports. But in Chicago, you could do a 500-foot tower and everybody's like, okay, four-page staff report. All right, that's enough. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So it was shocking, but that's just how it is. The environmental regulations are not as steep here. Um, they have a lot more room to play with um, kind of what to do with land. I mean, on the South and West sides, we have lots of vacant lots um, to work with in, in swaths of land. So it's not a mad dash for, for land like it is in, in California. In, in, sorry, not in California as a whole, but specifically in Los Angeles. I think what they do with affordability and they have like this um, required affordability ordinance that I think is top notch. Um, I, I mean, like I've seen, of course, there's models that, you know, you can always look at it and be like, oh, that's fantastic. But comparatively to Los Angeles, I was like, OK, Chicago's doing something right. Also, in California, we get sued a lot. 
in Chicago, they don't get sued as much. Um, so <laughs> which I don't I have not decided if that's a good or bad thing yet. Um and so yeah, there's definitely lots of nuances and cha- and differences, but I've also really learned a lot from but from being able to experience government planning in, in very different contexts. Um and of course the transit is so much better, <laughs> so much better um in Chicago and our planning around transit, I think has uh, got has has had a good evolution even since I've been in in Chicago, which has been four years. So, yeah, there's definitely lots of things that I've learned from both contexts. Did you work on the um, the Purple Line extension in LA? Is that what you meant by the West LA Transit? No. So what I the Transit Neighborhood Team. Some of us did were assigned actual lines. I was assigned working on land use problems around the line. So like the expo line expansion, I didn't work on the actual expansion of the expo line, but what I did since there was going to be um, like issues of gentrification or land grabbing around the expo line, having those multifamily design guidelines was a byproduct of the expansion of the expo line Um, or like LAX making sure, you know, the Crenshaw line was coming. We wanted the Olympics because that was when us and Paris were both bidding at the same time. So Paris has it next year and we have it in 2028. So that was a byproduct of kind of needing a better plan around that transit hub. Um, So I worked more on the land use side than I did on the actual line extension itself. I love how you broke down kind of the examples between LA um, and your experience in Chicago. I feel like people who have experienced, you know, both of these major cities, either as a visitor or as someone who lives there, but maybe listening to this and not familiar with the planning concepts or processes can understand how some of the projects that you touched impact their day-to-day life and that what kind of what happens in the background outside of that lived day-to-day experience. So thank you for just breaking that down in a way that 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 is easily understandable for folks and I'm even learning myself as like oh when I did LAX is real bad when Jasmine picked me up she's like never again <laughs> it's just if you pick somebody up from LAX you truly love them <laughs> I'm saying it's really sad because there is no good way to get there except to drive your car or take an uber like have you ever tried to fly away? You leave it from Union Station or Van Nuys? That's how I always got to the airport. Oh, well, see, I don't, if I lived in the Valley or if I lived downtown, that would probably make uh, sense. Oh, but I, okay. I don't live in those two areas. I don't know how else to yeah, get there. Yeah, unless you take, so what I would do, because I lived in South Central, but I would take, a, it was cheaper for the Uber from Union Station than it was from LAX in a lot of ways. So like I would either take the Silver Line to the green line go over and then get to the airport or take the expo line to union station get on the flyaway. but i was i didn't like driving this sounds like a lot of steps <laughs> i'm just gonna i didn't say. like driving <laughs> angelinos y'all are lazy there's a way to do it you just gotta work hard at it now of course if you have a disability or there's a, there's a reason there's a reason why this stuff is complicated and it's not accessible to everybody to your point jasmine right it's kind of like it's it's yeah I had to jump through hoops you're right so I take back my statement most of y'all are lazy some of y'all are justified (laughs) you mentioned um your role now as the Chicago recovery plan director um Mm -hmm. what does that look like and I guess how would you describe that position and some of the day-to-day responsibilities yeah so 
I love, love, love this role. Um, so basically, as you know, pandemic, you know, it's here, it's happening. Um, and so in 20, as we were in the 2021 budget cycle, you know, the Biden administration released the American Rescue Plan. And so what Mayor Lightfoot did is she also, she said, okay, we have this American Rescue Plan dollars, but we're also going to do as a city is sell a bond, a social impact bond to investors. And we're going to take that money and we're going to invest it. And we're going to put that money with the American Rescue Plan. And we're going to call it the Chicago Recovery Plan. So that is the birth child of Mayor Lightfoot. Um, and so each department, you know, depending on what type of programs or services they could offer, got a chunk of that addition, that funding. And so my particular department between 11 different programs, we have $237 million to distribute. Um, now, specifically, the way I looked at it was, yes, this is about um, external resiliency and fighting the pandemic, but then also looking at the city of Chicago's planning department saying, what internal um, resiliency measures do we need to be taking? Like the city of Chicago, um, although it's smaller than the city of Los Angeles, only has 150, 40, four to 50 planners at any given time, but they're charged with way more by ordinance like economic development. Um, as in like actually putting out um, tax incentives, TIF, we have tax uh, increment financing here. So TIFs uh, to to help with redevelopment. Um, so they have a lot of responsibility, but I feel like, you know, still to this day, severely understaffed. Um, and so I was like, what measures can we put in place also internally with this funding so that we don't find ourselves in a 2020 you know, version of our planning department again, where we're scrambling to find resources and get on Zoom and do all these things and also become more transparent, um, be more proactive in how in how we're doing, be more thoughtful about how we're equitably distributing the resources that we have as a city. And so under the 11 different programs that we have, we have things like we have a community development grant, which is a grant that we give out to small business owners who haven't been affected by COVID-19. We have a community wealth building pilot, which thinks about um, uh, like uh, community investment vehicles in, in businesses. So like think about housing cooperatives, um, shared ownership models. Um, we have programs surrounding what we call equitable transit-oriented development. Um, so prioritizing putting affordable housing in near transit on the north side of Chicago, but then thinking about just getting businesses and uh, those lot vacant lots repurposed on the south and west sides where there's a lot of vacancy around the transit lines. Um, so that's just like a taste of the things that we've been able to do. Uh, we have this other program called Public Outdoor Plazas where we invested in some of the vacant lots to become uh plazas in communities on the south and west sides predominantly um, we do have a few um, on the north side where we pay to a delegate agency or a nonprofit to um, revitalize them for three years um, and so thinking about some of these are the nicest newest parks that they've had in decades um, and so like kind of using the American Rescue Plan dollars for activation and development like physical development and not just services uh, which has been really cool we have a predominantly all-women team um, I'm super I have a great to have the best team in Chicago argue with your mama um, we have a great team, uh, of people of very diverse voices. And so that's why we have these 
core values that we come back to over and over again when we're thinking about our grant making, making it more accessible and just distributing those dollars. And then we're very analytical. So I'm also over our data management in the department um, because I think data management and data and foreign policymaking um, gets lost a lot. <laughs> and so thinking about impact and not just like dishing out dollars, but how are those dollars reinvesting themselves or what do what do they get us and a product is saying like okay we should continue to fund this program even after the American Rescue Plan dollars are gone or after the social impact dollars are gone because these are the impacts that happen and court we should corporate fund this um and so yeah it's it's been it's like my baby in a way because I'm in charge of creating this system um and monitoring these programs and reporting to the treasury and keeping everything uh in order but also I love my team and we're good at collaborating. It's not just like Nina is the czar of, you know, this program. It's we truly do get in rooms and whiteboard like, what have we seen happen? What do we want to change? How do we want to be creative and inventive? And um, being able to have a team that is with you, you know, and shares your same values is very um, rare sometimes. And so I'm very blessed to, to run this program. Where can um, our listeners and Nemo and I find more information about um, the Chicago recovery, the plan? Is there a plan available mm-hmm. to read or where can we find it? Yeah. So if you Google um, city of Chicago, Chicago recovery plan, I'm sure all the links will, will pop up. Um, specifically, my department has a micro site that has a very long, <laughs> you know, kind of, um, address but if you google department of planning development city of chicago you know um chicago recovery plan you'll learn about it and also i know this is going to come out after the american planning uh, uh conference in philly but my team will be presenting two sessions about the work that we've done one in-person session at philly in philly and then one of the virtual sessions um talking about specifically how we're using american rescue plan dollars um, so yeah, happy to talk to any of my colleagues across the nation who are interested in learning more about how our programs work. Okay. I'm like, wait, y'all, that's what y'all doing? Okay. I was like, it's going to be dope. Every time the honestly, APA don't deserve us. And you can even keep that in. APA don't deserve us. I say that to their face. Um, but what makes it worth it to me is creating and cultivating this community. Um, and that's going to conferences and seeing my colleagues from across the nation and hearing their stories, us kikiing about, we could go from kikiing about Creed 3 to, you know, talking about the intricacies of a zoning change in Houston, Texas. Um, you know, it's it's a great experience. It definitely warms my heart every year. And I'm inspired by, you know, what you shared about what you all have decided to do. What do you all have done with the recovery plan dollars and ARPA dollars? Um, and not just looking at it as either doing what you were already doing pre-COVID, mm-hmm. but thinking of really changing the face because um, what I've seen a lot is that it ha- it came, the money hit, it was quick, and people had to get creative and figure out how to make it work. Um, mm-hmm. But without having the people in place to be intentional about how to do that, things just still end up being scattered. Um, yeah. And so I love that you all sound like you were able to expand your team because you can be thoughtful when people are not being overworked and when people mm-hmm. are, you know, having a balanced, a balanced yeah. work environment and then you can ultimately serve residents better in that way. So, um, yeah, I definitely enjoy following the success you all have 
Um, I've also seen Baltimore, they have a very kind Mm -hmm. of intentional face of what they've been doing with their recovery plan too. So I've, I've been inspired by watching that. Awesome. Yeah, I think good planning is intentional and transparent. I think that's mm-hmm. when you when you have planners in the planning department that's not responsive, but they're proactive. I think you always get better outcomes mm-hmm. for whatever jurisdiction you are making those those plans for. Um, yeah. Just circling up again, what would you consider to be some of the highs and lows or um, challenges or opportunities in post COVID-19 recovery planning? If we can say post COVID-19, I don't know if we're ever going to be in a post post COVID world. Um, Well, I think it hits on a lot of different things. And I will say it is a struggle, especially in changing political climates to be steadfast in what your professional opinion is. Planners, I don't believe planners are non-political and I don't think that we are neutral. I, I know people say that. I, I think I think that's some bull s. I won't cuss. Um, I think planners, if you have, if you're following the ethics and moral morality of what we are, sh- what we should be doing, right, versus what we have done and what we are currently doing, um, then you should be giving recommendations to the political leaders that you think are best, not not at the whim of one administration or another. Which again, even you know, as we saw through the Trump administration and the Biden administration, um, you know, even in Los Angeles, you know, with the changing landscape of of mayor, every city, right, changes mayors, changes administrations, a director changes, and then your whole, you know, your whole thing is out the window. I think for me, the struggle is to say to anybody, let's slow down, right? And I don't always win those battles of the let's slow down and be thoughtful because that's not everybody's clock, right? Everybody has their own clock as to what they think should be getting done and how they think it should be getting done and on <laughs> and on what timetable they think it should be getting done. And I think what I am lucky to have is a commissioner who believes in my vision, um, an administration who understands the value of... Um, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then a team who understands how to put it into practice. Um, And so the difference between those who do and those who teach is that you have to be able to not just say these words in a vacuum, but to also articulate it in your policies and in your methodology for what you're doing. And so that's why I say the five values that we stick to really help to ground our decision-making and thinking about, you know, uh, being data-informed, being people-centered, um, thinking about being innovative. And government is is afraid to fail. There's no such thing as failure in government because people already have a very um, ad- adversarial relationship with government, especially from communities like the ones I'm from, right? Um, and so when you make room to actually make improvements. You also have to make room for failure. You have to be prepared to say, this didn't work and we like to go back and being transparent about that can sometimes come back to bite you, right? And so I think if there's anything that I think was difficult is that, like just understanding 
the checks and balances of, okay, like we need to move fast. We need to get this information out there, but I also need to do it with, with some, um, dignity and some ethical, um, anchors in order to make sure that I'm not just pushing something through for the sake of pushing something through or giving people money just for the sake to say we did it. And then in 10 years, when we look back at this, at the stats, only 8% of them ever, ever came to fruition. Um, and so for me, especially being a young black woman <laughs> in power, talking the way I do with the nails that I have, with the earrings that I wear, with the hair that I, you know, the way I wear my hair, it's even more of people always kind of contesting your ability to make decisions. Um, but one thing that I have is self-confidence. <laughs> and so, and I'm also not a fool, right? Because remember, I was telling you, when you're planning in somebody else's home, you have to humble yourself. So there's a lot of humbling that I have done in order to understand how to approach problems. And so instead of just coming through with a bulldozer and ruining relationships and saying it's my way or the highway, I am more thoughtful, have better relationships and have the no and, and wise enough to say, to some extent, we need to be collaborative. And then when it comes down to it, I can make the final call to say, this is what we're doing. Um, and so that has probably been the biggest challenge over the last year and a half is just being able to do things the way um, I professionally, my professional experience and my personal identities have taught me, this is the way we should approach it. And then also being open to failure. I, you might see me looking down. I'm like taking notes. Like, <laughs> like this is all very relevant. I'm like, yes. Oh my God. Okay. I was just still wrapping my mind. It's fine. Because I feel like I don't, I don't. And I, you know, I, I guess I hold back part, a little bit on, you know, on the podcast on what I do in my day to day, mm -hmm. but it hits <laughs> what yeah. you're saying is, is hitting and I'm like I, I got some email I got some things I need to shake up so, yeah. back to work Look, tomorrow <laughs> and the thing is I worked my way up to this you know like I wasn't a baby planner well maybe okay I, I've always been very straightforward I will say shockingly to even to my own surprise sometimes in the rooms that I'm in but at some point you just have to own who you are and what you bring to the table and what I always remind myself is I'm highly employable. Eh, okay. I'm going I'm to speak truth to power so I can lay my head down at night. And at least if they say no, I did, I said my piece, you know, um, and that's, and that's really all you can do. Ooh. Sorry, y'all. Toto. <laughs> Toto agrees. <laughs> um, we have this little segment on the podcast whenever we have guests on we have to come up with a better name for it Nima right now which is hot takes and it's like a speed round of six or so urban planning issues urban planning topics and we are going to state the topic and then ask you to give us your initial thoughts on them and so Nemo, do you want to kick us off so you'll have about 45 seconds. So we'll cut you off pretty abruptly. <laughs> but you'll have about 45 seconds okay. to um to respond. Um and it is whatever comes to mind. Um there's no there's no right or wrong. Um and some of them are intentionally broad, um, just to just to hear your thoughts. So the um first one is um in response to a tweet that was going around planning Twitter. 
Um, and I'm sure I could even just say, what are your thoughts on planning Twitter? But <laughs> the tweet that was going around is, um, it was a meme of, I forgot what Disney movie it was, but he had a lot of mm-hmm. like knives to to him. And oh, everyone was uh-huh. saying, what is your unpopular urbanist opinion? Um, mm-hmm. and so Nina, what is your unpopular urbanist opinion? Mm, that we should be working to make ourselves, to make our jobs non-existent. Like if we're truly doing the work that we want to do as far as empowering communities, especially marginalized voices to be in charge of their own fate when it comes to the the built environment that they live in and and thrive in, then we should, as the experts in the room, quote unquote, be trying to undo the systematic, the, uh, the system of planning itself and having to have somebody in a room say this goes here and this goes there. Um, And so I think, that's aspirational, of course, <laughs> is the planners are not going to uh, disappear by tomorrow. But uh, I would say that that's, that's probably my controversial opinion. We should be working towards making our jobs non-existent. I'm going to take it to another perspective, and that's housing. And so mm-hmm. the National Low Income Housing Coalition, they just released um, their annual report, The Shortage of Affordable Homes in the United States. And the report found that there is a national shortage of about 7.3 million affordable and available rental homes for extremely low income renters. Those are the ones that have incomes at or below the federal poverty line, or they make 30% of the area median income. And so what are your kind of thoughts on affordable housing broadly and as it relates to this report letting us know how far we are from reaching those severely vulnerable neighborhoods and communities housing 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 i mean no matter where you live housing i one i believe housing is a human right so i think the way america looks at housing is just backwards i think we should we shouldn't be thinking of well i think there's this false narrative or dream that like oh yeah go buy a house you're gonna be great the american dream like no first of all black people when it comes to our taxes we be overtaxed statistically by assessors and then when it comes to the market we're being undervalued so we lose money on both sides home ownership is not going to save black people it is not it is it is not going to be a part of our liberation what we should be focusing on is ex- actually expanding the government to again either subsidize housing put caps on housing costs um and for them to own more property rights time there you go (laughs) (laughs) i could give you a a a a video essay about our housing problems so i'll just give a nugget that i think people are very easily forgetful when it comes to government subsidized housing the mortgage that we know today is a government Mm -hmm. subsidy like Mm -hmm. the Mm 30-year self-amortizing mortgage did not exist Mm -hmm. before the government came up with that with the national housing act and the homeowners loan corporation and so and then the vet all the veterans programs the subsidized of suburban neighborhoods like mm-hmm. it's very easy for people to say oh no we don't want to subsidize housing but we've always done it that's how america has such high home ownership and so all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's an issue because on who's using it because once all those gi bills got they start going to the suburbs they was like public housing what is this thing and then you couldn't get access to mortgages because one of those contract homes on the south and you know on the south and west sides of Chicago, it's it's a mess because once 
again, your human right at the base level to have housing and to and to have access to stability. As soon as we get that, it's like, oh, no, we got to pick and choose who actually has access to those privileges. Nemo, hit us with the next one. I don't know if it comes up a lot in um, in planning, but I do know sometimes it is used as a as a tool. Um, but I'm curious your perspective um, in being in the government now on social media platforms for neighborhoods. So apps like Nextdoor, Citizen, mm. um, Ring, the security system, they also have a platform. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Toxic. Not useful. NIMBYs. Um, even, yeah, even in my own neighborhood, I, I, I mean, it's just all, it's, it's counterintuitive to actually building community <laughs> and actually talking to your neighbors and actually having conversation about how you feel about safety or what safety even means to you. Cause safety means different things to different people. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of them because I just have not seen them be used in a way, um, that's not harmful like most of the time I will say like of course that can't be a, a huge generalization but I think they're more problematic than they are useful that's valid jumping mm, kind of back to housing what are your thoughts on the commercial to residential conversion so CoStar came out with an article early in February um identifying several projects in the loop of Chicago, which I wanted to bring it up to you, where there were um, office buildings that have planned conversions, either full conversions to apartment or partial conversions to apartments. Do you think this is a true viable solution to um, our housing Vacancy. affordability issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and office okay. vacancies? Well, I think generally, I will say, I think we should build buildings with a few different uses in mind, because over time, things change. There was a time where people loved living in the suburbs and hated downtown. And we were, you know, and we as black people, brown people were relegated to the inner city, right, quote unquote. And now there's this resurgence of, oh, everybody wants a 15 minute city. So <laughs> let's come back downtown. Um, Los Angeles has seen it. Obviously, Chicago. Chicago has always had like a pretty strong downtown, but, you know, uh, Detroit is seeing it. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I think generally, though, yes, we should be thinking about buildings not as this one thing that's going to be here forever, but this building that can encompass a lot of different uses. And if, yeah, if, if the if the need is, if the market is saying the need is housing, then let's change it to housing. All right. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> I was like, I know, I'm trying to like delicately cut you off. No, 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 I love it. <laughs> it's like being on a game show. Um, I think we got one more, one more each. So we talked about this a little bit um, earlier in the episode, um, but your hot takes on public transit. Public transit, access to the city is also a human right. Pub viable public transit should be a human right. Um, I think we should invest more in it. I just came back from this practicum in Paris, kind of learning about how they like government leaders in Paris and meeting with all these different departments and their public transit. I was like, wow, just think of America invested this much time and energy into our public transit, what people could have opportunity to. So, um, so, so, so important and we should invest more time, not just to the transit line itself, but to the community around it and creating kind of those communities centered around transit in all neighborhoods, specifically in black and brown neighborhoods, because we're the people who don't drive. I mean, statistically, um, income wise, we don't have cars are expensive. So that's time. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. 
Yeah. I'm glad I, we got to hear a little bit about your um your time in Paris for that. And it was it was eye opening experience. Now they France has also rebranded their colonialism, so I could give you a whole video essay on that too. But their transit system, top notch. And finally, this is a broad one: climate change, planet's role in climate mm -hmm. change. Um, I think, yeah, when we talk about sustainability, that's included in it. I mean, I think just protecting in, in 1995 in Chicago, there was this heat wave and a lot of thousands of black and brown people, maybe not thousands, hundreds, black and brown people on the South and West sides died because they just didn't have heating and cooling. Right. And so like, it's not just about, um, like, oh, you know, like your carbon footprint, which is important, but mostly on billionaires and corporations, let's be for real. We need to be thinking about our most vulnerable communities when this extreme heat or extreme cold happens. And so if you're planning for the most vulnerable population, then you're planning for everybody. And we should think about how climate change affects those vulnerable populations. I think we got the soundbite right there. <laughs> <laughs> and that was right on time. That was right on time. Ooh, you did great. You did great. Thanks. <laughs> um so uh before we close up we wanted to kind of get a little bit more into your journey and some words of wisdom to impart on listeners so we're planning to watch, launch a book club soon for mm -hmm. podcast listeners what books have made an impact on your journey and they can be planning mm -hmm. not planning related well yeah okay so this is I was laughing about this with my partner earlier because I'm an audio audio visual learner so <laughs> There's not a lot of books that I can like pull from. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love NPR. So like, if you're thinking like Cold Switch, which is, this is not what you asked me. Um, <laughs> it all applies. <laughs> Cold Switch, Throughline, 99% um, Invisible, like podcasts that make you think about other people's experiences in a, in a, in a way that tell story, tell stories. Um, I also like, I mean, in the books that I that I do read, I read a lot of sci-fi fantasy, like The Children of Blood and Bone, um, or um, The Darkest Child is a random book that I love <laughs> from childhood. Like, it just helps me to reimagine like what these different places are. One sci-fi is is like not real, right? The Children of Blood and Bone is about it's it's set in in Africa and it's about these children who have these mystical powers um but thinking about how they describe the landscape and the map and all these different things it's very or game of thrones and thinking about you know different places i think it just helps to um expand how i think about even in fiction or sci-fi what the world could be and how it could look um and I like to use those as references. I also am, you know, into a lot of pop culture <laughs> uh, type of podcast because I also think I learn about places and spaces um, in those venues. So I don't have a particular book for you, but those would be some of my um, recommendations to get into. No, I think that's very important in this idea of like Black Futures and people calling like Black Futures Month in, in terms of Black mm -hmm. History Month. I think it's very important because it's something that I haven't really looked into too much, but I think the idea of it is like Black people exist in the future and like what can right. our lives be in the future? Because when you read those books historically or watch the films historically, 
we're not necessarily present in the images and it's like we exist right. in it. so what is our what can we imagine our lives to be like uh 30 50 60 years from now and how do we fit into all the new nuances so I think those are very yeah. useful thanks <laughs> although I did not answer your question I hope for all the audio visual learners out there no, I appreciate it. I think that perspective is helpful too. Um, and like how we learn and like how we receive information. Um, and yeah, sometimes I turn on the Ted talk channel on Samsung's free channels just for like yeah. background noise. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's like, you get to see the people presenting it. They sometimes have clips and you're also like learning and hearing. So mm -hmm. no, I completely understand. Thank you for that's, those recommendations. That's very fancy Nemo. Just having a Ted talk on in your living room. <laughs> just on just, the background. Just in the background. <laughs> Um, and do you have any advice for listeners who are interested in pursuing planning? I was so touched to hear earlier um, about how you were able to start a program between USC and the youth. Um, again, me kind of being that unicorn, not realizing what it was, what it is like to not know planning mm -hmm. and know, know what planning is from a young age. I mean, I had my interests obviously before I got to that um, time of being a senior in high school where I was interested in place and space, but um yeah, just hear, hearing what advice you would have if anyone's listening and thinking about pursuing um, planning. Lean into what makes you special. Lean into what you think it are flaws and find the beauty in them. I think finding the beauty in the identities that I may that I was born with couldn't help. Um and at times may have been ashamed of, right? Nobody like, oh, I grew up poor. Like nobody's like, you know, jumping for joy or um, things like that. But like also, but I found strength in my blackness or I found strength in these other things. And and so I, I would say, especially if we're going to change the landscape of planning to be agents of change and people who are going to undo, undo harm, then we have to start um, truly diversifying, um, not just the brochures, <laughs> but truly diversifying uh, what planning looks like and how it's defined. Um, and like in that future that we're, that we're working towards, what does planning look like there? Do we exist? Do we not exist? What is it? What does it look like? Um, but I think leaning into who you are as a person, instead of being told to assimilate um, or feeling like you have to assimilate will make you a stronger planner in the long run. That's so helpful because in the field, it's very easy. And I think you said it best early, you said, I'm a land use planner that thinks about transportation. I mm -hmm. think when you're starting in planning, it's very easy. Even in, in the undergrad program, they tell you, okay, pick a concentration. Either mm -hmm. you're, you're going to be in housing. So these are, this is your coursework for housing. You're going to be in transportation. This is your coursework for transportation. Um, but where your interests lie and where your skill sets lie might bridge those. Right. Um, and I think that's very important to re recognize where your skill set is, where your interests lie and to build a platform or a space for yourself that allows you to work across those different areas. Right. And most times you're not alone. I mean, like I leaned into who I was, who, who I am. And there's women like you all who I'm like, oh, I find inspiration in you or like, yeah, I would stop every black woman at every planning conference I ever saw and I make them my mentor to this day. <laughs> I still do that. Right. So it's kind of like 
lean into that because there are other people out there looking for another another you right An- another them um to be inspired by and to be lifted up by and be supported by and so the more we we come into these rooms being authentically ourselves when we feel safe enough to do so and sometimes even when we don't the better off our profession will be we usually do um takeaways for the episode Nemo do you have any takeaways for today's episode yeah, I will say, and I was trying to sneak and get a picture of us not looking, but we can take like a cute one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I moved my camera because one of my screens was looking dirty, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, my takeaway, uh, sorry, Jasmine, I'm just giving you a bunch of stuff to cut out or you can leave it in. <laughs> but it's um, so my takeaway is actually um, another thing that you had mentioned earlier, Nina, about um what your purpose is in planning um, and leaning into that undoing of harm, even though you are part of an institution that perpetuates harm, but knowing Mm -hmm. what your purpose is in that. Um, So that's definitely a takeaway for me. Like Jasmine was saying, when you're picking your concentration for me coming in, well, from undergrad and then going into grad school, it's like, I want to do community development. I want to get into the nitty gritty of the problems. I want to be on the ground. I want to be at the nonprofit um, and that's not what ended up happening so far in my, my um, <laughs> career trajectory, but I do own some of that internal fear of what if I can't undo the harm? What if I make it worse? Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of that fear um, did keep me from being um, directly tied into the community, although one of the things that motivates me and keeps gets me up to do my job every morning is that I do get to see impacts of policy decisions um, mm-hmm. happen every day. It may not be the, you know, I might not be the face of a community led movement, whether it's through government or through organizations, but, um, that's still something that I think is inherent in my purpose, whether I continue to do planning for years, whether I, um, you know, whether I continue to be planning adjacent. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of thinking about my own, my own career trajectory and, and what that looks like on a day to day is my takeaway. Mm-hmm. And you have the right to change. I mean, you know, you you have the possibility. Your career is going to be long. Well, hopefully you win the lottery and are delivered from work because I don't wish work on nobody. Nor Message. do I. <laughs> nor do I dream of labor. But yeah, just because you, you are start speaking in one all pathway, of the tenets of this podcast, <laughs> we that is one of our tenets. We firmly <laughs> believe. <laughs> what's a job <laughs> it's a job I mean yeah, it's capitalism I'm part of it I need a job I gotta pay these bills who 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 gonna pay this mortgage like mm-hmm. um and again perpetuate capitalism <laughs> um <laughs> but you have to you you have the ability to to ebb and flow right and that's what then that's what I always tell myself like I have the ability to ebb and flow and when I feel like my purpose your purpose is is should be steady like my purpose is making more opportunities for little girls, little Ninas in the world, right? Because again, if you think about little black girls and some of the most vulnerable populations we have, no matter how how their identities intersect, whether they're a trans girl or they're uh, have different abilities or whatever it may be, if you plan for them, you're planning for everybody. But I could be flipping burgers and you know, and my purpose would be the same. I could work at a nonprofit, my purpose would be the same. I could work in government like I am now, my purpose would be the same. So. You just have to remember that you you can ebb and flow however you want to. And my final takeaway for the episode is that I left government 
and I left planning behind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and true true like planning and like that is okay working yes. for the city in the planning department or working for the mpo or working for the state planning mm -hmm. agency i left that behind and i i feel like my purpose when i came into this field was wanting to make an impact that i could see that was tangible I, i'm i'm like i enjoy reading but i'm also a very visual person and i wanted mm -hmm. to be able to see my impact sooner than 2028 nina mm -hmm. I um know. it's a long game it it's is. a long <laughs> game in planning um and maybe that's my own selfishness or whatever i think everybody has their role right everybody has their mm -hmm. role they want to do long planning they want to do mm -hmm. uh neighborhood planning or community development as long as you like you say you're feeling your purpose and so i moved over to the real estate side of things because that to me seemed like a timeline that was feasible. I can work on an affordable mm -hmm. housing development project today. And in 12 months, people are going to be moving into it with 80% or 60% AMI. And that way I can visibly mm -hmm. see when I drive down the street, mm -hmm. my impact on neighborhoods. And it might be a smaller impact. I might be impacting a hundred residents rather than the millions that fly into LAX every day. But that to me seemed feasible and sizable. And so I think for people listening to this podcast, who are not planners, but care about their neighborhoods, care about the community that they live in, care about the communities that they grew up in. Even if you're working in finance or you're working as an accountant, mm -hmm. if you care about your neighborhood, there's still opportunities for you, not in the planning field, not in the political Absolutely. field, not in the government sphere where you can make an impact positively on your neighborhood. Absolutely. And I, I will say, especially being in this position that I am now, like, I rely so much on non planners, like I rely on my team, my finance team, they're, they're in the planning department, none of them are professional planners, but I need them to help me execute the things that I'm doing, right? Or my GIS folks, they're not planners, you know, I'm relying on them to help me map the data so I can track my impact, you know? So there's all sorts of ways that you're, that people are contributing to the vitality of our built environment. Even again, if they're not actual planners, which is why in some far distant futures, we, we won't even have to exist um, because everybody will see themselves as planners. They will all be contributing to the fabric and the change of their neighborhood, no matter what type of job they do. Cause they're all contributing to how that built environment is being shaped. So I totally feel you. I just want to make one last request of you. Can you explain briefly AICP? We didn't get a chance to talk about mm -hmm. this with Byron, which I now realize, Nima, we should have. Oh, but yeah, I think Byron. <laughs> that's something yeah. that uh, is very specific to planning and it's a certification. Mm -hmm. And just tell us about that in the process for you. Yeah, I was actually listening. I was listening to this episode earlier and I think we yeah, might have mutual people, but I've never met them. Um, so it's fascinating to hear that. So, yes, AICP, again, um, is the American Institute of Accredited AIC Credit Planners Accredited Planners Certified okay, Planners Certified there, Thank you yeah. Thank American you It's Institute a Monday night I'm, I'm one of them though I promise I passed the test the second time not the first time but I did pass it the second time and I have I am not ashamed of it whatsoever Standardized tests are not for us Okay <laughs> Neither is Neither is that test Um, although um. You know, I think it's it's an accreditation, of course, like in a place like California, it was really important for me to get it because planning in California is completely different. You know, there's re there's required comprehensive plans by law. Governments pump 
you know, hire a lot of planners, council people hire a lot of planners. So in order to, you know, just especially as a black woman, you know, we feel like we, I don't have the privilege of mediocrity. So therefore I have to do more um, in order to, to get noticed. Um, so I felt like it was important. Now feeding into the institution of AICP, do you need to do it? If you don't feel moved to do it, don't do it. I, I think for me, it helps to hold me accountable to some sort of like my professional development and the connections that I make. I've also drank the juice on APA. You know, I'm heavily involved in APA because I'm constantly trying to change it. Um, but also have found value in it and my mentors and every opportunity that I've gotten in my career has stemmed in some way from APA. Um, and so being an accredited planner, I think gives you a little bit more grounding at least to some type of moral and ethical principles about our profession um, that I think can be important for some people, but may not be important for everybody. Um, and so like, you're probably hearing a non-committal answer from me if people should get it because it really is on a case-by-case basis. I did it. And if you need help or resources, like I said, I took that, that exam twice. Um, you can always reach out to me. I can, I still got my little, you know, Google file with all my, with all my, uh, study materials in it. Um, and I think it was transformation, transformational for me based on my experience and what I wanted to bring to the field. And then also when I get in rooms with people, they can't talk, they can't take, they, I know everything they say. I can talk the same talk. And sometimes having those letters behind my name just proves, uh, to them that I'm worthy or, or of some kind. Right. Um, which again, you don't have to feed into that trope if you don't want to. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically what it is. It's given out by the American planning association who also, you know, is over the, um, planning accreditation board for planning schools. So there is some credibility behind having those letters in your name. I think the report is that black women are the greatest population pursuing advanced degrees you can check it me I know sounds right I think right. We're for sure greater than <laughs> black men and white women I'm not sure about mm-hmm. white men but I always wonder how much of us in our pursuit of advanced degrees is just trying to qualify with the same standards as somebody with a mm-hmm. bachelor's degree like just how yep. much we have to do so much it's a lot of that said. I was like, how much of us are really just going to get this degree so we can have some letters behind our yes. names? You can believe. Mediocrity is rampant depending on what I what the identity politics are in that particular environment. So unfortunately, that's why I say, you know, if we stop buying into it, then it doesn't hold as much weight. That's why I say it's a case by case basis. But yeah, sometimes to get into those rooms or to have your resume not chucked out of a pile, you gotta have a name of a school and some letters behind your name but take that as what you will I mean as far as the listeners because I could I could go both ways yeah no, that was a really helpful kind of background and I, I think an honest answer I know you said it was non-committal but we're here for honesty <laughs> so I appreciate that yes um, and before we close out what is uh some of your takeaways from this conversation um Well, one, I just, I'm so impressed by you two and just like so enthralled by you two. So one, congratulations on this platform and on the things that I've been able to learn about you just in this short conversation. I think this space, this space that you're, like I said, I'm an audio version, visual learner for it. So this space and this platform that you're creating um, is probably more important than you can, than you can even imagine. Um, And so I hope that you all sit with that and like, you know, kind of absorb the, what you're doing 
in these conversations and how you're helping again the next little black girl find her way um to her purpose so I've definitely have learned and am honored to be here for that um and yeah just just continue to to be yourself and and do what you need to do because you know there's going to be lots of um opportunity to make change so that's what I've got from this conversation thank you so much yet yeah, as we end season three Nemo and I have a lot of discussions on direction and and everything so thank you for that we really appreciate it super glad we mentioned this offline I think but we have been following you since at least 2018 Mm -hmm. and so it's really it means a lot to us to have you on the podcast to to be recording this in women's history month even though it will come out in April um and to have be looking at this screen and see so many, two additional accomplished Black women in their own respective fields, in their own respective segments of the world and segments of the, the country. And so I'm excited to be in this space. And we have we did a lot this season. You can see a live in-person episode on YouTube. Um, you can listen to all 10 episodes of this season and all 20 episodes of the last two seasons. We have mm-hmm. reels online where we toured all different cities this summer because we was outside for real. We were really outside. outside. <laughs> um, and we what else, Nemo? Yoga session um, for our health and wellness Black History Month theme. Oh, um, the, the episode before Byron. Yes. Was that okay? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we had okay. um folks could uh join in um and do a quick uh, restorative yoga session, which was great to see that share community um over Zoom. And so we hope to maybe some more in person events next season. I feel like we had a, so many great guests this season. We really went and we said we're having we're having guests. So we definitely found that balance um this season, which was really great. Um, one of my favorite things about the podcast, getting to to learn and connect with with others when we come back we will continue to drop episodes every other tuesday um, and you can follow us on instagram and twitter at the four degrees pod peace out y'all